Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of musicians from the UK who recently collaborated for the first time, Dana Margolin and Joseph Mount. Now, Mount has been the driving force behind the band Metronomy since 1999, and he's found success not only with a series of winning electropop records, but also by remixing tracks for big names like Franz Ferdinand, Gorillaz, and Lady Gaga. If you're unfamiliar with Metronomy, a good place to start is 2008's Nights Out, which is a sort of concept album about, as you might guess, a night out. But Metronomy's catalog is intriguingly all over the map. The band's latest is called Small World, and it features a much gentler side of Mount's songwriting personality overall. It also features a stunning duet with the other side of today's conversation, Dana Margolin of Porridge Radio. Like Metronomy, Porridge Radio really started out as a solo project, but grew into more of a band situation, though each is still the brainchild of one person. Margolin started recording under the Porridge Radio name back in 2015, but it was her second proper studio album, 2020's Every Bad, that really made the world stand up and take notice. It's a powerful, intense record that stands alongside current heat seekers like Dry Cleaning and Wet Leg, but that has a stamina all its own. Margolin is just about to release the follow-up to Every Bad, an equally bracing and incredible set of songs called Waterslide, Diving Board, Ladder to the Sky, once again on the Secretly Canadian label. Check out a little bit of a song called Back to the Radio. And I miss what we were, but you've closed yourself off to me. We sit here together. In this conversation, Mount and Margolin talk about their collaboration, about the time that Mount almost but didn't quite catch Margolin performing, and about the importance of lyrics. You'll hear how eczema factors into a new song. They also get to Kierkegaard, Michael Stipe, and Margolin's desire to, but inability to, write a, quote, nice little love song. Enjoy. I've been spending a lot of time with your sister on tour. Because I don't know if you know this, but she's a dancer. I do know that she's a dancer. <laughs> and she's dancing with a queer performance artist called Lynx. Yes. And she sprained her ankle just last week on tour with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about how good it was having a kind of a support band that was like really amazing at making the crowd like go crazy yeah like each night links was getting them working them up into a frenzy for us they really do that they really yeah. like build up this mania in the crowd <laughs> it's amazing to watch just like in london everyone was completely losing it yeah but it's hard to follow <laughs> exactly so we and then we had to sort of yeah kind of try and follow it so they were almost too effective as a support band yeah and then i was asking you about if you had a support band we don't but i really want i really want to bring another band with i think like i'm always trying to find bands who i love who can come yeah. and play shows because i do find on tour my favorite thing about tour 
is getting to watch other bands play. I love just like being in a room where there's live music. Like it's it's the thing that feels the best in the world for me. And so like, you know, on tour when you're really exhausted and you just like, you're not really in the mood to play a show yet and you're, you're about to play a show and you've like just had dinner and you're kind of trying to digest it before you play. <laughs> and like you've not really slept properly. And then you just watch a band that you love and suddenly it just like feels better. It's quite romantic, really. It's a long it time is. since I've... A long time since I felt like that. Since <laughs> you enjoyed. Uh, no, but it's funny because I was like, it's funny you talk about that because we, we were playing some quite nice venues and they often have catering and like the links and everyone were getting the catering as well. But quite often they were waiting until after the gig to eat. And we were like, oh, of course, because yeah, because if you eat at seven and then you're on stage at eight, you're a bit sluggish. Yeah, well, that's always the worst thing about being a support act on tour is that your timings are always so bad because you have to arrive just before. Like your sound check is later and your stage time is earlier. So you actually have to cram the whole bit of the day into about three or four hours. Whereas when you're headlining, you kind of get there early. You do your sound check. You have like a few hours. Everyone thinks you're important because you're the headline band. Yeah. <laughs> you you go and you walk around town, have your dinner, come back, watch the band. It's all very relaxed. Well, you are very important as well. It's not that you think you are. It's that you are actually. Do you think you're very, very important? important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, of course not. But it's nice to feel wanted, isn't it? It's nice to feel a bit special. It is. <laughs> like for years, we were just playing like a million shows all the time supporting everyone so we're kind of at this point now where we're just about to start doing this in a way that we're like we are the we're an important band whereas we've never been important before i remember when we got offered like a first decent support tour like who was the first decent band <laughs> that offered you a support tour i did a few solo support tours i supported florist on tour on my own okay. if you know them they're like a new york band and they're really good and I also supported Ian Sweet on a tour but that was just Georgie and I from my band did that I kind of used to just say yes to everything and just go for it and be like okay let's figure out how to play the show as a two-piece now <laughs> I, mean, I just remember sort of like when we got offered we did a block party tour and this was like a very long time ago that's very cool like we didn't have enough material to play for like 45 minutes, which is what <laughs> they were required us to do. But it was, just, I remember just thinking like, oh, wow, this is like, this is a real, like, it was a taste of, of the sort of real thing. And then it suddenly felt like, oh, well, we can't, we can't go back to supporting any old jumps. <laughs> any nobodies. Yeah. <laughs> Only indie royalty from here on Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's true. There was a point where it was like, you say yes to every single show and then you get to a point where you can start saying no to things and you can start being a bit picky about, even though it's a support tour, you can say, okay, well, I'm not going to just support anyone. I'm going to support only people I love. Like, I'm not going to do the show unless it, unless it, but you have to kind of reach a certain point, I think, for that to start to be okay. Because I feel like the first few years you're just like desperate for anything. When we were doing like that block party support and we did we did so many different sports like but when we did that like I felt like maybe we were finding some of our kind of audience like I felt like maybe sometimes there were people who would who weren't just like oh god when a block party playing how did it feel doing what you do in front of like people who have no idea potentially who you are like do you feel like you kind of won people you kind of gained fans and stuff 
I think we kind of have a weird thing where we're kind of, we're a very intense live band. I don't, have you been to a show? I did, I did accidentally. You accidentally came. Oh yeah, you accidentally. Maybe we should also explain to people how we know each other, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is simply from our collaborative track. Which we did together, which was the first time we met. For my record, yeah. But um, you did come to the Hope and Ruin when after I'd played a show about six years ago. I have a very good memory for like for gigs and really and venues. And the more I, I do not, <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I sort of remember. I think I arrived at the end of your show, and I'm sorry for that, but I wasn't. It's okay. I was kind of going to see the band after. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I my friend worked there and he was like, oh my God, Joe from Metronomy is here. Oh my God. And we oh were all God. like, wow. So you had that celebrity status amongst the, uh, <laughs> the Brighton <laughs> DIY scene. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I do love that somebody remember, somebody else knew, noticed that and mentioned it to you as well. Yeah, that I was there. They were like, oh, so you've... Have you known Porridge Radio for a long time? Because I saw you at their gig at the Hope and Ruin in... Can you imagine? I know, it's brilliant. It was, what, like 2014 or something? Maybe a bit later. Yeah, so I'm a sort of old, old, old Porridge Radio fan from then. Yeah, you go way back. Wow, that's really amazing. <laughs> You've really stuck with us through the years. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I like to support fans. You know, I am actually a very... I'm an old-time metronomy fan from probably where like from your block party tour days because I used to read the NME and I remember reading about Nights Out and buying the CD when it came out amazing and being a massive fan so that is my like thing that I tried to keep cool <laughs> like yeah yeah no it's cool I was on the I was on your track it's fine <laughs> like when I was thinking about things I wanted to ask you about like not that it's really relevant but I was sort of wondering how old you are but you don't have to tell me you could you could show me with hands because <laughs> I'm, I'm 28 I'm very, okay. <laughs> I have no shame. So are you 10 years older than me? I'm actually 11 years older than you. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I was going to ask you about that, but then hang on. I don't want to, I don't want to lose. Lose the thread. Lose the thread, which was that, so I think I saw a bit of you in 2014 and, <laughs> and then I'd heard you, I'd heard you on the radio. And then the only live performance I've seen apart from sort of online is, is recording you. And that was it. Mm, yeah. So I've yet to have the full experience. So I guess like we are, we are quite an intense band. I think a lot of people kind of come to the show, see, comes for the support. And then if they see us, they're a bit like, oh, that was a lot. And wow, I am quite cocky and I think I should reel it in. So I will <laughs> be less cocky. But I do think, I think that we do surprise audiences who haven't come to see us. Often people be like, oh, I saw you by accident and it was great. But I think maybe that's because we are like, we are a very live band like the live chemistry is very important to what we do the kind of image i've built up or the image i'd like built up of you pre <laughs> previous previous to actually like to previous to recording yeah was i think and it's that thing which is quite i guess quite kind of the thing that you realize about um about musicians and like like whether it's kind of bands or pop singers or whatever but like but basically people present to you like what they want to present to you like everything is kind of um considered you know what i mean the kind of intensity of what you do is such a sort of huge part of like of how i think your sort of 
seen and and like consumed <laughs> and and when and when we were hanging out for the day in margate and how like it was just not intense at all <laughs> it was like, really fun but it's kind of i get i guess like recently i've been thinking quite a lot about that about how like the image that people want you to have of them and things like humor and humor in music and all that kind of stuff yeah and kind of enjoying seeing how people kind of play with it I quite like when we were working together when it came to the actual recording that's when I saw the thing which I'd sort of been expecting to see at the pizza shop (laughs) (laughs) yeah you create a persona like if you are an artist you create this artistic uh thing that you put forward or like a way of that you want people to see you and I think like especially because the music I make is very deeply emotional. I want to make people feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes, but also like I really like meeting people and talking to people. <laughs> and I yeah. find often there is like a bit of a dissonance between how I am as a performer and then how I am as a person. But I think maybe that's kind of the fun is that when you are a performer, I don't know if you find this, you can decide who you want to be in your song and you can decide who you want to be live and you can be that thing because you are you're creating an entire world that your art exists within and then outside of that you can be whoever you are in your day-to-day because again you're like creating an entire world that is your real life I think in a way that's probably where like where I've suffered from not really thinking about it enough (laughs) like I'm in charge of what I want people to see and think yeah but ultimately I don't really care what they see and think. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, that's really nice. But it's still like, it's still a decision. I was going to ask you about this, actually. I guess there's there's elements where I've been told in real life that I'm too intense. You know, and that's something that like I always want to push or go too far, go too deep. And I find that like I can channel that part of myself into my music, but I need to have other places where I can hide a bit. And so I'll maybe like put this element of myself that's incredibly vulnerable into a song, but I will still create a space outside of that where I can maybe put something that I don't necessarily feel ready to share. Mm. And I was wondering if kind of, cause your, your music is different to that. Do you find that you're putting something in that is maybe like a performance of your own personality or a performance of an artistic idea or, and then you need to have like another place that you put something else that could potentially be more private or. It's weird because I've sort of recently I've started to, I've started to sort of intellectualize like what I do a bit more. Much to the probable, like probable surprise of people, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but I've sort of realized yeah. I've realized what I've done, and like when I like the first album I made, I didn't sing on it at all, and like the second one I did, I made on my own, and it was like literally like what you hear in my first kind of attempts at singing, really. So that's like that's like some of the first songs I've ever like wrote with words and, and, and the first time I ever sang, I've sort of learned how to do what I do in quite a public way. So like, if you listen, if you listen through all of the records, like it's an incredibly like kind of bare document of how I've got better or whatever yeah. or worse in, in making music. But like, <laughs> or worse. Different. <laughs> diff- or different. But the one, the one thing you can't like deny is that it is like a faithful record of like my life in a way. And so however much of myself in terms of like, like literally like in lyrics, however much of myself I give away kind of doesn't, doesn't necessarily matter because because everything else is so exposed, like all the other bits are just there. Yeah. So I kind of, re- I, I've gone from thinking that I was quite, that I kept a lot of myself 
out of what I do for like and put it in another place to realizing that actually I kind of put like everything into it in a way maybe I think I'm hiding some things but I'm not like it's all kind of visible I think even unconsciously sometimes you, you just you just channel everything that you're doing at that at that moment or like, I find that often like in interviews people ask me about kind of like what were the themes that you were trying or like what did you learn from this record what did you and I'm like well it was just like a few years of my life so I learned about a million things about everything and like some of that was channeled into the record you know I think that quite often that's how it works and people like people are looking for more explanation but it is it is quite just like oh well that's what I got up to that's what I did there it is like <laughs> there's the song I wrote some songs <laughs> exactly Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. Your new record. Which I leaked to you. Which, I, which I, you leaked to me and I've just leaked now to everyone Who have else. you leaked it to? To the world. To the world. <laughs> okay. Have you put it on a, on a nice torrenting website? I did. I put it on a torrenting website and um, and it's going really well. Wonderful. But I, I was listening to it <laughs> and I was very much enjoying it. And I guess like the thing that strikes me is that in quite a few, in quite a few of the songs, right, I think like you're sort of a millimeter away from from like sort of like a pop smash (laughs) (laughs) all i want to do in my life is write a pop smash a pop smash i want to do it and we're working towards it it's getting there (laughs) i remember like the first time i heard and i'm sorry i'm not saying it reminded me of this but the first time i ever heard um pavement was because of that song um it's called stereo, isn't it? Yeah. I love pavement. Feel free to compare us. <laughs> I'll get to the comparison. Okay. <laughs> but like when I first heard that song, I was like, oh my God, this is like, and I'm talking about stereo. I was like, oh wow, this is this is like that other stuff I've been into, like Weezer, or it's like Green Day or something like that. I might be wrong in terms of timings. But 
I remember thinking like, it sounds like kind of pop punk to me or something like that. And then I obviously listened to like lots of other pavement and then you, you realize like they don't always do this kind of thing. A lot of the other stuff's way less accessible. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, I was just thinking like, you know, one of these days you're probably going to have a kind of like song, like a crossover smash hit. And, then, and I was just wondering if that's what you want. A The Look for example well, <laughs> yes, would exactly. be a uh, direct Either comparison there. <laughs> yeah I mean I would love that because it's fun to bring people in under one pretense of like oh our music is like this and then they realize that it's actually like a lot of other things when you have loads of different ideas and you love diff- loads of different genres and different artists you kind of they all tend to kind of seep in in different ways and it's fun to be like okay this song just just not on purpose but it just turned out this way like completely fits into this genre and this other one on the same album completely fits into another one but they're both very obviously my songs I think I, I can also see it in your music actually the kind of like there's you've got different vibes <laughs> yeah yeah different right yeah yeah it's fun to have that I would love that to happen yeah but do you think there's any part of you that subconsciously would feel like oh this is too um this is like too easy or something you know what I mean like do, do you think that, that would ever happen <laughs> I actually, every time I try and write a song, I try going and being like, I'm going to write a nice little song now. <laughs> and I'm like, this one's not going to be <laughs> really, this one's not going to be miserable. Like, I'm like, I'm just going to write a love song and it's just going to be a nice love song. And I just like, every time I can't do it. And I feel like with time, I will get there and I will write a happy little song. I think some of the biggest pop smashes ever are not like happy songs. I think lyrically, a lot, a lot of the sort of biggest songs ever are quite probably sad. When I've done stuff previously, I've like stopped short of certain things because I felt like, oh, that's like, that's not cool or that's not kind of me. You know what I mean? When, when in fact, I probably should have just been like, ah, fuck it. I keep telling people this is the year of cringe and I, I'm kind of <laughs> embracing that. And I think lately what's been really interesting and exciting to me just from a creative point of view is is just being like, okay, well, this thing is really scary. I'm going to do it. Or like even just in, yeah. my, in my life in general, it's like this thing terrifies me. I'm going to do it. Okay, I dare myself to say that thing that I don't want to say. And then I, I do it. And so it's quite, I feel like, maybe music the way that I'm writing songs is also kind of an extension of that which is like you know what like I'm just going to give everything I have to give and I'm not going to hide it when I came to record Hold Me Tonight with you and I I changed the lyrics because I was I was embarrassed by them and that was kind of like an example of that where I I think actually it was really helpful for me for you to just say like the most the most heart on sleeve stuff is the best stuff. Like the cringe stuff is the good stuff. That's what people like. Yeah, yeah. And I think it kind of it it kind of let it click for me in a way, which is if I've written something and I'm sharing it, I just need to like go all in. I need to give everything. If I'm gonna give something, I should just give everything and I should dare myself to just take that like emotional risk and take it to the next level. And so that's kind of something that I try to do actively in music and art, just like make myself incredibly vulnerable and then see what happens after that. But I think that's like, I think I, I spent a lot of time like, you know, like sometimes when, when you hear a, if you like hear a song and you hear a lyric and you're like, wow, that's like, that's really, that's like really clever. Like, or, or that's really kind of beautiful. Like I wonder how, how they came up with that. And then you realize either by sort of maybe, I don't know, like working with them or reading about it or something that, that actually, yeah, it was just like, 
it was a root one lyric. Like I like I was listening <laughs> to your there's a song of yours and I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was like something about hands hands being so itchy that you wish they'd fall off. Cut off my the, hands, cut off my hands because they're itching so much. No, is that yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. It's end of last year. And it goes, yeah. um, yeah, cut off my shoes instead of taking them off, cut off my hands because yeah, they're exactly. so much. Yeah. yeah. And like, and I was like, oh, there's that's funny. <laughs> I was like, I was like, <laughs> no, it was a combination, it was a combination of like, oh, that's like some really funny imagery. And on the other hand, it's like this weirdly relatable thing. Like, I don't know, like, like I mean, like in a really kind of like in a sort of again, like in the most, in the most basic of ways, like I like can I get eczema. <laughs> And I can like, yeah, no, that's why I, that's where it came from. I had really, really bad eczema was where I, it, like, that was the root of that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so on the one hand, you're just like, oh my God, that's like, it's so true. It's like lines like that, which kind of has, you know, like they just, it's quite effortless. So it seems effortless, but it's really kind of touching and nice. Yeah. I feel like there's, sometimes you just get a line that, that just comes into your head and it's, it often will come from something quite simple. And like, you know, that was very much like my feet were really itchy and I needed my shoes to like come off <laughs> and then my hands really itchy. And I was like, I'm so uncomfortable in my body. This is so intensely like horrible to have to experience this on my skin. And then it kind of, it can be read in a, an emotional way, but it's also just very yeah. literal and it's very like immediate. It's quite nice, like as well. It's quite like lazy as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a sentiment, I quite like it. But in a way that works for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's a very laughs> <lazy laughs> There's another thing I was thinking about and like, because this is something I kept talking about because when I was doing the new record and I was, Mm. trying to write like positive songs and it doesn't come naturally to me at all and I was like so I was sort of forcing myself to write sort of like happy-go-lucky kind of lyrics in a way and melodies and songs and I was talking to people about it and I was mentioning bands like REM and I was mentioning mm -hmm. like songs like shiny happy people and I was saying how like how it was so um it's like these miserable but joyful songs that are yeah they do both they do both at the same time exactly i wasn't necessarily like into rem when i was a teenager it was because i was into like nirvana or i was into stuff which was like angsty <laughs> but rem as as angsty just in a very different way no no like totally they are but at that age i could not draw the line between like michael stipe and and kurt cobain i couldn't do it you know what i mean it seemed too different but what i thought was interesting was how when I was lis listening to Nirvana and like in indulging in the kind of angst of it, I was, I don't know, like, like 14, 15, 16, that kind of age. And Kurt Cobain was like 26, 25, 26, 27 or whatever. Well, maybe a bit older. And, and it suddenly recently made me realize, I was like, oh my God, like this, all of this angst, like coming from someone who's in their like 20s, like now as someone in my late 30s it seems to me like like oh what do these young people have to be anxious about <laughs> like <laughs> such an old man thing to say <laughs> yeah, wow you really uh it's true it's like don't they know how good they've got how it? good they have it <laughs> <laughs> but no but, but like but what it made me realize is you'll never hear people like 
in their like late thirties writing angst ridden music. Um, because I think it's like, it's a sort of, it's like a weird thing that you don't necessarily relate to unless you're younger. But, but anyways, but I was thinking how me listening to your music and you being younger than me, it still has this effect on me that, that it would have had when I was you know, in my teens. I think there are some, there's some emotions that are just very base human emotions. There's some feelings that are just really universal, whether you are a child or an old, old man. Like so, a, <laughs> so um, and I find that there's, you know, I, I feel like there's music that as you, as you grow older, it, it takes a different place. So I feel like I could still go back to Nirvana now and or like my equivalent of no or like you know when I was younger I listened to a lot of REM I was really into them as a teenager and then I think like listening to them now 15 years later I'd I'd still get a very raw emotional response to that it feels like quite a compliment to you to say that because I, I often try and make things that are more universal or that can be understood in kind of emotionally similar ways but in very different contexts I suppose what I was trying to say that it's like interesting how a kind of younger person in music can have the appearance of someone that's like much more like worldly wise or kind of grown up emotionally and how like someone who's much older than you could listen to your music but still within it hear something that like to them feels you know what I mean feels like a voice of like authority or something yeah I mean, thank you. <laughs> That's a nice thing to hear. <laughs> did you hear the new Mickey Blanco song? I didn't. Is it really good? I do love Michael Stipe. We got Michael Stipe on it, and it's and it's like it will be apart from your singles and some of mine. It will be like the single of the year. I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really nice hearing Michael Stipe's voice, and it's like he. It's almost like he knows he knows where it's gonna do the good stuff. And and yeah, it's a really you should listen to yeah. it after this. You should have a listen to it. I will do. Um <laughs> I feel like I have like a, a question that I'd kind of like half formed, but I wanted to ask you about the way that like when you write, do you find that you kind of go in with now I haven't I haven't segued into this in any way, I've just kind of come straight in yeah. with this question. But um because I feel like you're like we were talking about this a bit earlier, which is that the way that you write is that you've got kind of like your whatever's happening in your life and whatever you're you've learned along the way, it all just kind of seeps in. You're not like trying to create boundaries or like block any particular yeah. element of your life off. But do you feel like you go into writing with an idea of what you're going to do or like with a particular set of values in mind about how you're going to write? Because in your music, there's like something that is very kind of like specifically you. It's like a very unique and identifiable sound which I think makes your music so good but do you think about that before you do it or when you write you just kind of writing as not thinking about it it's changed quite a lot you know when I was writing like Nights Out or the earlier records I was in quite a different place I felt like I was part of a bunch of like part of something that was happening in London and I felt like I was making exciting music (laughs) and so I sort of so I, I remember I remember like I guess trying to thinking like okay well it's like I'm just trying to put everything that I like in music I'm trying to put it into what I'm doing and I think at that point the sort of lyrics and stuff like that were like very secondary almost but but the funny thing about that was that because I wasn't thinking about them that much they ended up being quite sort of straightforward and quite good because they were just not too considered or anything yeah but I think now I think now when I make music I feel like because I've been doing it for so long I feel like I find it really hard to make it 
without sort of seeing it in some kind of like zoomed out way. I sort of see myself where I am now and where I have been and what I've done. And I find it hard to detach that from whatever I'm doing musically. So what I've tried to do more is to start really concentrating on lyrics. Because it's like I was saying about your, you know, like whether or not you think you care about lyrics, it's the most easy way into a song. And like, and like when I was listening to your record, all of the bits, there are some obviously like really brilliant musical moments, but they kind of reveal themselves over a few listens. And, and actually it's like lyrics, which are just like, bam, like chopping your hands off because they're itchy. <laughs> I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> Yeah, you like the eczema bits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I send you all my eczema writings. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely write from like a vocal, like a lyrics of vocal. That's like what comes first for me in any song is a vocal melody and some words and everything else comes after. I have done that a bit over the like past whatever, however many years, but now I think that's definitely how I'm going to do stuff. And it kind of changes everything. I think when you, when you work like that. Yeah, I guess it does. Maybe it would be interesting if I um, start, tried to write a song without any words. Maybe just that's riffs. my next just start, challenge. Yeah. Just like massive start with guitar riffs. riffs. Yeah. Well, my least favorite song on the album um, which maybe you can guess. On my album? No, on my, on my album. <laughs> I don't have a least favourite one on your album. Your album's great. Ah, <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> um, but like, the yeah, we have a song called Rotten on the new album and that started off with a riff. And But I like that one. That's about the apple. That was good. That's the one about the apple. You're very yeah. nervous. <laughs> <laughs> very smart. Very smart. I think that's like, I think that's really cool. I like that one. People love that it's there because it's a lot of other people's favorites. But um, I think you have to trust other people. You have to sort of. Oh, yeah. Often the song that you think is the best is like the one that everyone just skips over. And then they're like, but this one about the apple, I love it. Yeah. Well, as Josh, my manager says, um, people in photographs are the people who know what the photograph looks like the least. He probably said it in a better way than that. <laughs> but I think it's the same with the song. You know, I, I've got a good photograph analogy that you can tell him. Okay, I'll write it down. I'll text him now. Because sometimes people are asking about like, oh, what's it like when you kind of look back over your albums? And I was saying how it's like, oh, you know, it's like looking at photographs of yourself. If you look at it immediately... You're just like, oh my God, this is horrible. I look awful. But in about in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh wow, I look, I look so nice and I look so young and, and I was so happy. <laughs> and um, and yeah, that's how I feel about my albums right now. I used to hate them. Yeah. Well, you know what? Our first our first album I for years couldn't listen to. And I listened to it the other night, and it's like an album we recorded in a shed with like song structures that kind of go everywhere and it was just doesn't sound at all how I wanted it to listening to it the other night I was like this is this is like a great album <laughs> and it took me seven years to be able to hear it and think that it was good yeah time it's a great healer yeah. isn't it time is the great <laughs> and the greatest teacher there was a, a really good quote on that note that I want to read you, <laughs> which was, oh, okay, um, okay. well, we were in Copenhagen the other week and Sam from my band took me to see uh, Kierkegaard's grave. And I was like listening to Kierkegaard podcasts. And it was, um, it was just a quote, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And I was mm. like, yeah, that's, um, that's true. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Kierkegaard. That's damn true. <laughs> that is damn true. <laughs> <laughs> at, his, at his grave. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. 
if I can come up with any quotes now, but I can't, I don't think. It's hard on the spot. And, you know, I only had that available because I, I just had it in front of me. Because so you, you got it tattooed on your arm. Yeah, I got it tattooed <laughs> on my ass, actually, after that. <laughs> it was a lovely day in Copenhagen. <laughs> a really nice time. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> very nice to speak to you. Thank you for some very thoughtful questions. No problem. And um, congrats on the record. It's like seeing something like, yeah, like I was saying, like, evolving in in almost real time is really cool it's literally real time that's what's fun is that it's this is just life there you go. and it's happening it's happening right now yeah yeah exactly and, th- and congratulations on your record oh thanks i really like it thanks very much well done well you're on it you can't yeah you have to like it <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, nonetheless, I do like it. And you oh, did well, a thank great you very job. much. Thank and you. it was really fun to be on it and to come and get ice cream and pizza in Margate and yeah. have a fun time. We should do it again, but maybe not in Margate. Okay. Yeah, we'll do it somewhere nice for the next time. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Dana Margolin and Joseph Mount for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcast platform and all social media channels. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the Talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.